designers and curious minds. Ever wondered about the stories hiding within your building's walls? I'm Carrie Seaburn, structural engineer and host of Unstruct, the podcast that decodes and simplifies major concepts of structural design. Behind the math and physics, structural engineering simply predicts building behavior. Join me as we simplify the complex, making structural design accessible to everyone. Nowadays, instead of measuring it via cost, we're saying, well, what about carbon, you know? We've got two levers now that we can, if if an architect has an inefficient design, we can hit them with two levers if you like. (laughs) The official casualty figure is 55,000. Everybody I talked to told me that the actual figure is at least three times as much. And I believe that. I mean, seeing what I saw, Turkish codes are good and, and they have been improving, but compliance was completely lacking. Fluent in steel, concrete, masonry, and timber design, I'll bring you leading engineers to dissect the tails behind their building structure. Whether you're an architect, contractor, engineer, or just love a good story, this podcast is for you. Yeah, beam penetrations. That's a fun topic on this project. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Unstruct. From within your walls, hear the story behind how your building stands today. Hello, hello. Welcome to Tangible Remnants. I'm Nikita Reed, and this is my show where I explore the interconnectedness of architecture, preservation, sustainability, race, and gender. I'm excited that you're here, so let's get into it. Episode 11. Welcome back. I'm so excited for you to hear this week's conversation, like maybe a little bit more than usual excited. And that is because this week on the podcast, I'm sharing a conversation that I had with Sarah Marsam of Dismantle Preservation. She's someone who I connected with towards the end of 2020. And I first heard of her when I attended her Dismantle Preservation Conference last summer. And that conference was seriously one of the best conferences that I've attended particularly digitally, the way the chat was moderated, the number of diverse speakers who were talking about really important intersections. And it wasn't just your typical preservation conference that is just in a preservation silo. So it was just a really great conference. And I'm very excited to have her on the show. The quote I've selected this week is by Dr. Maya Angelou. And she says, we all should know that diversity makes for a rich tapestry. And we must understand that all of the threads of the tapestry are equal in value, no matter what their color. A few more things before we get into the episode. The podcast is now available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and a number of other podcast directories. So now you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And you can like, you can find, like, and follow the podcast on Instagram or Facebook under the handle at Tangible Remnants. So anyways... Back to the podcast. We cover a number of things in this episode, from some of her past work in the Rust Belt takeovers to what led her to do the Dismantle Preservation Conference, as well as um, her ideas and thoughts on ways to make preservation more accessible to the general public. It was great also talking to Sarah because she is in Ohio, whereas I'm in the D.C. area, so much more East Coast. So it's great to really meet someone who has more connections to this middle 
uh, to the center and the west coast of the country. So just a phenomenal conversation. Sarah's done a lot of amazing things. And so let me get into her bio a little bit so you can hear a little bit more about her. So Sarah Marsum, with 10 plus years of experience working in the cultural resources field, Sarah Marsum has a keen understanding of storytelling and connecting people to the past. Sarah works to improve the preservation movement's accessibility by empowering the next generation of community advocates and increasing representation of lesser known histories. In 2018, Sarah was recognized by the National Trust for Historic Preservation as the recipient of the American Express Aspire Award. And during the 2018 National Preservation Awards, she was also an honoree of the inaugural 40 Under 40 People Saving Places list. Her work has been featured in numerous publications, including Curbed, Traditional Building Magazine, and the National Park Service's LGBTQ America theme study. So she has been doing the work to really make preservation more accessible and help tell the stories. So I am so excited for you all to hear this fantastic conversation between me and Sarah Marsum. I'm really glad to have you on the show and thank you for taking time to come in. And so I would love, <laughs> love, love, love to start with a little bit of what you've done with the Rust Belt Takeovers and Dismantled Preservation and how that came about. Awesome. So 2014, I was a co-founder of the Young Ohio Preservationists, um, which is a subgroup of Heritage Ohio, the statewide nonprofit that manages the Main Street program and advocates for preservation in a variety of ways. So fast forward to end of 2015, I connected with Raina Regan at the National Trust for Historic Preservation Conference. And at that time, she was one of the leaders of Preserve Greater Indy, which is Indianapolis's young preservationist group. So she and I were like, you know, why don't we connect our groups some yeah. way? So sh she and I started brainstorming. And then at the exact same moment, this is kismet, the Buffalo Young Preservationists were having a similar conversation with the pit group in Pittsburgh. And I knew Bernice Riddell from Buffalo, so she connected with me. And so all of these groups, we all just kind of connected. Love and I it. knew like the Cincinnati group, and there's other young preservationist groups like in Rochester and elsewhere. Uh, the Midwest Rust Belt is a real hub for young energy, I guess. Um, so a whole bunch of us collaborated, and we launched the first Rust Belt takeover in April of 2016, and that was hosted in Pittsburgh. And it was an amazing event. More than 100 people just, like, showed up for this guinea pig event to learn, like, about different other young preservationist initiatives and like, why do we need a separate initiative for next generation community advocates? Right. And we explored the city and the snow and through distilleries and all over the place. And it was almost like adult summer camp <laughs> in like a sense or like a weekend camp for adults because there's so much fun mm -hmm. and that was the start of the Rebel Takeovers, and they've evolved to be a little bit more fine-tuned, but at their core, it's experiential education about a variety of preservation and cultural resource strategies that are structured in a way so that you don't have to be a 
person with a master's in preservation to understand the content. It can mm-hmm. be anybody who wants to be a community advocate. And you don't have to be a quote unquote young person to attend either. We've had retirees, we've had people of all ages attend. And We've done them in about 10 cities, I think, so far. Uh, Unfortunately, in 2020, we didn't get to do our one in Gary, Indiana, that I was really excited about with the Decay Devils. But Mm -hmm. it's just a way to help share strategies on how next generation practitioners and community advocates can have a voice in their community and share the strategies so that we're not all operating in silos so that we can learn from each other's triumphs, struggles, everything in between. And we've become great friends. Yeah, I love that, the idea of sharing and getting out of the silos, because I'm on the East Coast, and so the, a lot of the work that's happening on the West Coast and even center of the country, it's just, it's kind of out of, in a blind spot for me. Um, and so I love the idea of there being different levels of preservationists. I know you've kind of mentioned it or broken up as like passive preservationists, recreational preservationists, or professional preservation professionals, and the idea that everyone is kind of touching existing and historic buildings in some way, and being able to really open the tent so there's more space for everyone, so you don't just have to have the master's degree to have be a part of the conversation. So I think that's great. 100%. Preservation started out as a, the movement as we tell the story today started out as a grassroots movement. We can right. acknowledge that preservation started be- long before Ann Pamela Cunningham. Right, right. Before the little old ladies with tennis shoes at Mount Vernon. Right. <laughs> exactly. So, you know, how do we go back to helping people feel that connection to physical and intangible cultural heritage and how do we help them feel like they can have a voice regardless of their educational background, regardless of their age. We want all types of people engaged in this process. We may have the tools, we may have that knowledge, but it should be in my mind, our primary role to educate and help people understand the processes. Absolutely. Because like demystifying it is one of the ways that's going to actually make the field more accessible. A lot of homeowners, a lot of people who think that preservation is just the landmarking, the hysterical commission preventing me from doing what I want to do in my house. And kind of the more that we can help people understand that it's more than just that and really give more resources and tools. I think you're absolutely right. That's going to help move the conversation and help people see the many facets of preservation. It's really tough for us to push that conversation, though, because when we look at how preservation is currently structured, a lot of the outward communications are focused on the individual benefit, you know, the individual benefit of tax credits if I apply for them, the individual benefit of me restoring a window for my house. So how do we tweak that to help people understand there's a collective benefit to preserving all types of stories, all types of buildings. Exactly. And expanding the story. So we're not only talking about the importance of sites where, because some dead old white guy was there and really expanding the story to all Americans. And one of the things that I love about the built environment is that it has the potential to tell the story and it exists as a record of something that happened. So regardless of the story, it's still there. So like the truth is still there just waiting to be uncovered and retold. Uh, and it's like showing the receipts. Like, yes, this pe- these people existed and they did this very tangible thing that is still here. Let's talk about and celebrate it. 
Yeah, before I um, started consulting, I worked for the German Village Society, a nonprofit for a historic district. And one of my favorite parts of the job was giving tours to elementary school kids. And I always framed it like you would be a history detective and you got to look at the buildings for the clues for the history. (laughs) So I almost feel like we have to have that same kind of reframing with how we discuss it with adults. (laughs) Right. Exactly. Because it's one of those things where particularly as we're starting to tell more of the stories. So African-American, Indigenous, LGBTQ, like all of the different stories across the nation, people being able to see themselves in the history of the place and being able to understand how it really is a continuum. And so while we're talking about history that happened 50, 100, 150 years ago, we're also placing ourselves in that continuum. So theoretically, someone will also be telling our story in the next 50, 150 years. So it's kind of being able to use preservation as a storytelling method, I think is also something that excites me about the potential of moving forward with us. So then one of the things that I know you are currently working on, or maybe you just wrapped up, is the Women's Suffrage and the Banner Project. In preservation, we tend to think about moments in time. And so 2020 was the 100th anniversary of the 19th Amendment. People, you know, there were a lot of Mm -hmm. celebrations around bicentennials. There's 50th anniversaries of buildings. We like to have very specific dates for celebration. Right. Obviously, we need to move beyond that because you shouldn't just celebrate Women's History during Women's History Month or Black History during Black History Month. But that's a different issue. So um, working toward this year, I developed a workshop to help people understand the advocacy strategies that were done to get women the right to vote in 1920 with the acknowledgement that not all women could vote in 1920. Not all people could vote until the 1970s. Really important to even clarify, it was after the Voting Rights Act was passed that people could all vote. Exactly. I believe that, especially in the current state of the world, we need to have the ability to be advocates. So I've done a number of workshops over the years to help people know how to be advocates at a historic district commission meeting and that kind of stuff. So using that same type of mentality of teaching people how to be informed and strategized advocates, I created a workshop tied to the banners that were a part of the suffrage movement. Um, Mm -hmm. This is also tied to my particular interest in preserving traditional women's trades like sewing. So I went into 2020 with this workshop where I researched the imagery, the colors behind it, the phrases behind it. It's amazing. The suffrage organizations actually compensated their women, their peers to sew these banners. So, you know, it was women empowering women. And there are all these layers to the strategy. And of course, there are a lot of cons to it. The fact that uh, these suffrage parades were segregated and because of coercive philanthropy, Black women were sidelines, all these layers to it. Basically, these workshops created a open dialogue saying, here were the strategies of how these people spent more than 70 years strategically advocating for rights. Now, here are why they made some 
questionable choices along the way, why they excluded people. Mm -hmm. This is what we can learn from so that we can understand how to advocate for ourselves today. And so people would sew banners and create banners as an Mm -hmm. homage to somebody from the past, as a way to advocate for something that they believe in today or something that maybe just empowers them and makes them feel excited to get out of bed in the morning. And I had one of these workshops in port person before the pandemic hit. Uh, It was great. It was at Miami University in Oxford, Ohio, in partnership with their library. It was so much fun. And it it was just great. Like all genders were there learning how to sew for the first time and making these banners. It was awesome. So When pandemic hit, I had to find a way to pivot these workshops, though, because, you know, I'm not going to lose my 100th anniversary year as a way to talk (laughs) about voting rights history, especially on an election year. I'm not going to lose that opportunity. So I started doing virtual workshops and people were given a they were emailed a digital PDF with stencils that they could use where they could either color in their own banners, collage their own banners. They could create their own little banners and whatnot out of felt. You know, you could create it out of anything you wanted. Mm -hmm. It was just more about the process about, again, learning about the history of voting rights with an emphasis on the marketing strategies of the suffragettes. But then helping people understand how to use those skills, use that knowledge of the past to be advocates for themselves and for others today. And I was truly amazed at the conversations that people were having. There were conversations about trans lives and advocating advocating for the queer community. There were conversations about what we can do better to preserve women's history and to make preserving women's history more intersectional. So it ran the gamut in these conversations between everyday impacts in our lives to flaws in the preservation system, just depending on the audience. Because Mm -hmm. I did these workshops with history nonprofits, preservation nonprofits. I did one with the Matriots, which is a political action committee based in Ohio that specifically works to get women elected into office in Ohio. So I did these with a very wide range of audiences, Mm -hmm. which in my mind, again, reinforces lots of people are interested in the past. Lots of people want to know how to connect to it physically or intangibly. And then We just have to, as preservation practitioners, I think, present it as an option. One of my most successful workshops was actually for Spoonflower, which is a textile company Mm -hmm. based in Durham, North Carolina. And the last I checked, my Instagram live workshop for them had had over 2,000 views. Nice. You know, I think A, virtual opened up the doors to tell the story to a broader audience, but B... How many of those people do you think would have just in right. gone on their own to learn about suffrage? I don't know how many, but by bringing the content to a completely different audience, it created an opportunity. Exactly. And I think you've been doing that so well this year. And like the way that I even found out about uh, you and the work that you're doing was through the Dismantle Preservation Conference um, that you put on during the summer, which was amazing. And one of the things that I loved about it was that it completely connected me to a number of different preservationists of color around the country who were doing really interesting things. 
before the conference, I really thought that I knew the majority of the black preservation professionals because I was like, well, I can count them on like one hand. And I'm like, oh, wait, there's more. So I was so excited to see that. And I love the way that you're being able to spotlight and highlight different people doing different things and even how you put out your unofficial, but I love it, the unofficial 40 under 40 list that really was introducing more work. Um, I'll be sure to link to that in the show notes, but talk a little bit about how that came together. So 2020, again, all the pivots. I couldn't coordinate a takeover for Gary and Deanna, so I had all this extra time on my hands, (laughs) and I've been very fortunate to be able to attend a wide variety of preservation conferences over the years. I've attended basically every national preservation conference you can think of at least once, and I've attended a wide variety of statewide preservation conferences. Mm -hmm. So I've just been fortunate to develop a wide network and to see a wide variety of strategies and ways that people have been working to do the work, either through traditional strategies or unconventional and everything in between. But I really was feeling like there was a void in the content when I was having, you know, the quote unquote water cooler conversations with my peers, where a lot of us were feeling like there weren't conversations about how to advocate about monetary value and Mm -hmm. salary equity and transparency. It's really one of the big things that I'm into advocating for right now. Being a preservationist, mental burnout, I cannot even fathom what some people experience when they're interpreters at, say, a plantation. That is something that we have to have conversations about when you're telling Mm -hmm. difficult stories that takes a mental toll. When you're advocating for a building and the public's yelling at you, saying that you're wrong, that takes a toll on you. So there are all these layers of conversations that just weren't happening or weren't being pushed far enough, in my opinion. So I decided to look at how I wanted to invest in the field. And I've been selling dolls for a few years. Um, It's the Tiny Activist Project. I currently sell a Tiny Jane Jacobs and a Tiny IMP. And I've given little tiny scholarships to people with big dreams to attend the National Trust Conference through that. I wasn't going to pay to send people to a virtual conference this year. So I have this little bucket of cash that I like to invest back into the field. Mm -hmm. And I decided to invest that money into paying speakers for this event. A, preservation perspectives have a value. I want to compensate somebody if they're exercising that. B, because I wanted to help set a standard because I think we ask a lot of practitioners to volunteer their time, their expertise to speak for free at events. That's a really big ask. And there are, you know, and there's a number of conferences out there that still charge speakers to attend the event, which is preposterous to me. So I was thinking about this through multiple lenses that I wanted to create an event to push conversations forward. I wanted to raise a standard. If rinky dinky me, Sarah, a one person (laughs) consulting group is paying speakers. I think that speaks volumes. Yes. You know, yes. If if you're an organization, I'm, and I've shown you up. 
Yeah, um, particularly when your conference is costing hundreds of dollars for thousands of people. There should be, you know, some sort of compensation for speakers. Yeah. Yeah. So I put on this event on July 28th, which is my birthday, because I thought this would be a great birthday party to... And I honestly, I didn't know what the response would be. So I figured, worst case scenario, I'm going to sit there and listen to these wonderful people speak all day, and I will be educating myself, and that's the best gift of all. (laughs) So the response floored me. In 24 hours after it went live, over 500 people had registered. And by the day of the event, over 1,700 people had registered. And day of more than a a thousand people live streamed. Yeah, that's awesome. Which is awesome. And all the videos, except for unions and mental health, are on YouTube where people can still stream them. They're still streaming today and increasing in views. The reason why mental health and unions were only offered online for a limited period is because they were having um, some difficult conversations. Mm -hmm. And so out of respect to the speakers and the privacy that they want to maintain, those were taken down after a week or so. Gotcha. So, I mean, I didn't speak at the event intentionally as well. You know, I Mm -hmm. thought that it was important, like you said, to show that there are BIPOC practitioners in the field and the majority of the speakers at the event were BIPOC and I wanted to just create a platform and invest in these people and help elevate their voices as best I could. I just had so much fun. I like coordinating events and I like doing things behind the scenes. So it was a ton of fun for me. Yeah. It was one of the better conferences that I've been to this year and I was blown away and the content was great. The conversations were great. And even just like the I think the thing that I really enjoyed also was the way that everyone was engaging in the chat. So it was like there was that extra added layer of being able to kind of meet the attendees in the chat, also listen to the panelists. Like it was really, really well done. And then to find out, I was like, wait, it was just her who put this on? This is amazing. (laughs) I was like, I need to know her more. (laughs) And then the event was also tied to, like I said, I'm really passionate about salary transparency and creating labor equity, which is why I had a session on unions and, you know, I don't know a ton about unions, so I just figured this would be a great opportunity because a lot of historic sites and museums are starting to unionize. So I also encouraged people as a part of all the promotion to reach out to four identified job boards to encourage them to stop posting unpaid internships and to encourage them to require compensation information. And all four of the job boards have changed. And now I'm looking at furthering that labor equity campaign in 2021 to help give people strategies to advocate, you know, at a job interview to help everybody better know what salary ranges look like in the field, what you can expect at multiple points in your career to help people know what best hiring practices are, are from an employer perspective. What are some unconventional benefits you can give to help retain and cultivate talent? Um, So I'm really thinking about this almost from an HR lens, which I wasn't expecting to do like a decade ago. But when we look at the resources that are out there for preservation practitioners, there's not really that kind of support system. So we're operating our nonprofits, our governmental entities, our private consulting firms from very traditional 
business standpoints and that leadership style just exacerbates all of our inequity issues. Right. And one of the things that I really loved about the fact that you talked about the need to stop advertising unpaid internships is I think so many people don't recognize how classist it is to say, okay, you can work for us, but for free and it's going to be unpaid, but you'll get your exposure, you'll get credits or whatever that ignores the fact that there are a number of students and young adults who need to work to help support their family. And so by not giving them the opportunity to be paid to do the work and get the experience, then that's just widening the inequity gap. So then only the people who can afford to not actually have to make money could then get those opportunities. So I love that you brought that up. And on top of that, what a lot of people haven't connected the dots for, when we don't pay entry-level workers, it devalues people at all other stages of the career. So stop acting like this is just a normal hurdle that everybody can do even. You're creating this larger systematic flaw in the system. Yeah, absolutely. Oh my goodness. This has been such an amazing conversation and we have covered a number of different things. So I know we are getting to the end here. So are there any um, final thoughts or other places that you want uh, people to find you online or other things you want to touch on before we wrap up? You can find me online at Sarah Marsum on all platforms. (laughs) I'm not on Snapchat or TikTok, but you can find me Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook. And I think that some people think that I'm joking when I say just reach out because I'm, but I mean it. Like I'm always down for a conversation And I'm always excited to learn about what other people are doing because I think it's really important to continually learning what people are up to in preservation because I like plugging people in for things when I find opportunities. I know that not every opportunity is right for me, but maybe it's right for you. So if I connect with you, I'm happy to help do that if possible. So just reach out to me. I'm just a weirdo on the internet, I promise. <laughs> no wonder we got along so well. Kindred spirits for sure. Well, that concludes another episode. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, historic preservation is a present conversation with our past about our future. We don't inherit the earth from our parents, but we borrow it from our children. So let's make sure we're telling the inclusive history. Musical selections that you heard throughout the episode are from Sarah Gilberg's album, Other People's Secrets, which is available on Amazon and just about everywhere music is sold. This week's episode is sponsored by Smart Chief Architects. Smart Chief Architects is a course that I created to help architects better manage their small practices. And you can find out more information at www.smartsheetforarchitects.com. And if you enter in offer code TRPODCAST, as in Tangible Remnants Podcast, then you can get 20% off any purchase on any of the courses. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, 
Stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that <laughs> then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like, us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it, guys. Oh one that God. came out of nowhere. Woo! It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.